York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. In 1982, the military junta ruling Argentina saw their poll numbers, knew they were unpopular, and so they decided on something to give themselves a boost. And unfortunately, that was the ever popular go to war. And so they attacked and invaded the British Falkland Islands. Only 60 Royal Marines stood in the way, and they were cut off 8,000 miles from home. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. And a special tip of the hat to everyone watching today's interview via YouTube. In this week's episode, we'll bring you the book they said couldn't be written about the battle they say never happened debunking the conventional wisdom that those Royal Marines, the Lions of Stanley, surrendered without a fight. That was an injustice in the narrative, and oftentimes in wars we do find things like that are necessary to win the war. But in this case, the injustice is so long ago that it's about time that we solved it. And our guest today did do that. His name is Ricky D. Phillips, and he brings us The First Casualty. The Untold Story of the Falklands War. In a future episode, we'll chat with Ricky about his second book, which invokes the capital of the Falkland Islands. That's called Last Letters from Stanley, the unpublished Argentine battle for the Falklands, which you may know the Argentinians refer to as Las Malvinas. American history lovers will really like Ricky, I think, because he reminds me of author Shelby Foote. And who doesn't remember his southern drawl, that familiar voice, that real gravitas he always brought to discussing the Civil War. I mentioned Foote and Ricky Phillips in the same sentence because, like Foote, Ricky is a military historian who didn't take the path through lecture halls of universities. So he brings a passion that's often lost in the academics push to publish or perish. Plus, to my ear, I think he has a pretty cool accent, too. Ricky is a nine times number one best-selling author in the United States and the United Kingdom. He's written on subjects in addition to this one, such as ancient history and the Napoleonic Wars. He's really into the Falklands conflict, which doesn't mean to say he's a warmonger, but he's really into doing justice to these men who fought there and had to be forgotten for the greater war to go forward and lead ultimately to the liberation of those islands. Find him online at the First Casualty blog or on the Tiffle social media accounts where you can find me as well. Those are Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Okay, now that we've arrived at this cold outpost in the South Atlantic, let's join Ricky Phillips in the opening hours of the Falklands War, where truth is the first casualty. And here we are with Ricky D. Phillips. He's joining us from Edinburgh, Scotland to chat about his book, The First Casualty, The Untold Story of the Falklands War. Welcome to the show, Ricky. So excited to have you here. Thank you very much, Dana. It's been very, very exciting getting to this point. Of course, we've been... uh... We've been chasing each other around for a little while, haven't we? Yeah, and we just spent 40 minutes talking about various elements of history and publishing. And I hope that that carries over to people watching and listening where they'll just get wrapped up here in a really exciting, 
energized, passionate storyteller. And you really are that, Ricky. You're somebody who not only loves the subject, but really respects the men. And having read The First Casualty, I'm really glad that this book and the story of these men was in your hands because they deserves to be told. And many times you have a story and it's just left in somebody's hands that just yeah. is happy to publish it and put it away in the university library or do the equivalent of leave it in the woods and other academics may stumble across it, but it's not really written to do justice to the story of the men and the women in the story who suffer. In your case, just men, the Lions of Stanley, and your book invokes that idea that truth is the first casualty of war. And this yeah. truth went 40 years here, almost not being told. So for listeners in America who are unfamiliar with the Falklands War, with Operation Rosario, which is the invasion by the Argentines, and Operation Corporate, which is the UK's effort to retake the islands, what's the conventional wisdom that you debunk here in the first casualty? It really is where one starts, isn't it, with this? There's so much to it, but you, you've read this, so you know it. Talking to an American audience, many are, are very, very unaware of anything to do with the Falklands War because the USA wasn't in it, which actually isn't quite true. The USA was in it, just wouldn't admit it. But the Falklands War began on April 2nd, 1982. Uh, there were 69 British Royal Marines and a few Royal Navy men on the islands. That was the sole garrison of these islands. This is 8,000 miles from the UK. And they've got a civilian population, only a couple of thousand people. Stanley is the, the capital of the Falklands. And it's a small town, effectively. Um, you know, you would find a like a maybe a, a very small town, like somewhere in Canada or Maine or something. like that. That's kind of what you're thinking of. It's cold, it's windy, it's wet. And it's a lot of wood and corrugated iron, particularly. Um, and there were only 69 men defending a civilian population. Now, most people in the UK didn't know where the Falkland Islands even were. Most people had never heard of them. The first that most people knew about this came out in the newspapers. And this just set the trend. You know, they say a lie can travel half the world. And so it can. Um, the British public woke up to these photographs of these Royal Marines laid out in the road, all these sort of black commando clad Argentine commandos and and what they call Buzo Tactico, which is, I suppose, like a, a Navy SEAL, if you will, sort of stood menacingly over them and everything. And the, the newspapers said, you know, shame, horror, surrender, raw Marines surrender with barely a shot fired, token defense, you know, absolute shame. And people thought, oh, my God, you know, this is this is terrible. This looks like the fascist junta stomping on democracy. But the story that came out was of a mere token defense. It said that um, these, these guys, these Royal Marines had fired a, a handful of shots just to sort of say they were there and promptly sort of in panic threw their guns on the floor and said, you know, we surrender. Um, and the problem was that there was, there was no other story. There was only the Argentine story and they got these photographs. And once the Royal Marines had, they didn't surrender and there was never a surrender. There was a a ceasefire agreement, but it didn't look that way. A photograph can look a certain way and you can tell any story, but we'll go, oh, okay, it looks reasonable. And this is what everyone thought in the UK, in Argentina, 
in the United States when they saw it and in, in the rest of the world. They looked and they saw these photographs. But the only people who could tell the story were the Argentines. And of course, they were all over the press. And so for all those years, the word even, it, it's a word a couple of them have used. I, I would certainly never use it about them. But a lot of people, they felt that a lot of people would have thought they were cowards. This is a word that, that a couple of them have used. So never, never my word, but you know, the, the idea that they were just these sort of these cowards who were just there. Oh God, there's thousands of them. Better throw our guns down and survive. Yeah, and this was the story the entire world ran with for all those years. And it was the story that these guys, the only people not telling these this story originally were pretty much these guys, but nobody had ever put them together and started to say, there's no point just, you know, griping and moaning and hoping someone's going to come along. We've got to do it, you know, and to put these guys together and to start to work with that became, I suppose, the first casualty. I like how deep this story goes. It really is. If people like spy thrillers and things like that, where the government is doing things that are necessary for a greater war effort, in this case for the Falklands, that you wonder why, why didn't they tell that story? And then as you read the first casualty, it makes sad sense that they told these guys, well, the surrender story plays really well in the press. We need international support for this. And something that I thought of was if we tell everybody, well, we had a ceasefire, well, the UN is going to come in and likely would have said, okay, well, let's hold that ceasefire. Let's expand that and yeah. hold back Britain. Don't send in your troops. And this is actually what the military junta was hoping for in Argentina. They thought, well, we'll, we'll put the troops there. We'll occupy holding the territory will be nine tenths of the law. And then Britain will have to negotiate with us and they'll never be able to throw us out. And the unfortunate thing is that these men here in the first casualty they're the ones who have to have their honor smeared a little bit by this story that they just gave up. And I remember in 1982, I was alive. I was young. I was 12. But here's a war on TV. And so I'm watching it. And I remember wondering at the time, well, gosh, how? Especially since we'd just gone through Jimmy Carter and doing nothing about the hostage crisis. And as a young kid, if I had to play tie a yellow ribbon on my violin one more time for I don't know why they thought the Ayatollah was going to care that we were having assemblies and playing Tony Orlando and Dawn songs, but that's neither here nor there. But the fact that we thought that at the time, it re really bothers me now. And I'm so glad you wrote First Casualty because I have carried around uh, an impression that disrespected these men for 40 years. And the fact that you were made an honorary member of Naval Party 8901, the Royal Marines unit stationed there in the Falklands, it shows that they really appreciate this and that people are getting real history here, but also not that dry history. They're getting it passionate and they're getting something important because if you were put on that ship and you said, we fought like the devil, and they're telling you, no, no, the story you're going to tell, and you can't not tell it, is you're going to salute and say, yes, we just had to, we just had to give it up because it plays better. And after after almost 40 years, next year is the 40th anniversary, right? In 2022, yeah. after that, their story deserves to be told. They deserve to have that honor restored. I think so, Dean. I mean, I mean, the story was obviously of this shameful defeat. Um, and the, the truth was so far from it. Um, the truth was, I mean, it was a it was a stunningly huge defense. 
it wasn't just, you know, it was almost a little bit like um, like Rock's Drift in the film Zulu with the stone wall. There was a stone wall, but it was also, it wasn't like the Alamo, you know, it wasn't just we're standing behind walls shooting. There was battles in the town. There were battles out in the, in the fields and on the beaches and um, small sections running around fighting, you know, a whole running battle as well. And this was a... A battle that was, you know, it was three and a half hours. The the Argentine casualties, Argentina came out and said, we had one man killed because they needed a martyr. And Argentina's Superman, a man called Pedro Giacchino, was uh, famously shot and killed. And he was just the perfect martyr. And they needed a couple of wounded to say, well, this guy, this guy. But basically that was it. Just a few shots and that was it. And a, a few books, not many, a few books have touched on the subject and said i don't think that was right you know the um i think the royal marines might have caused more casualties and of course i was the first person once the battle is over to take this into the hospital almost right next to where this battle is going on is the only hospital king edward memorial hospital in stanley and i spoke to and interviewed all the doctors the nurses and the, got the medical reports everything to look at the amount of operations that were done, the amount of people who died, the ever and I was, you know, it was vast. It was vast. These Royal Marines, you've used this term, the Lions of Stanley. And this comes from a, a very good friend of mine who was there in the Falklands. You know, these guys, Naval Party 8901, would come to the Falklands for a year. They had a year-long deployment. And these guys, the Royal Marines, lived in their barracks, Moody Brook, just down the road from stanley and of course they would come into town and they they were told you know it's in a reserved area don't swear in the town you know don't don't <laughs> don't do soldierly things help people be nice to people and these were young men these are young guys in their teens to early 20s barring perhaps a few you know a few senior men and um is there even a bar in town um For no there are yes there are yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the frog and nightgown, they called it, although they called it that. Nobody remembered why. It was obviously some previous detachment had um, called it that for some weird reason. So these are just young, popular guys around town. You know, it's a town of 1500 people. And these young guys suddenly transform into what they're supposed to be, what they were trained to be, what they are, you know, deep down. And they have thorough, thorough conviction that they are not going to see the next dawn. And with that in mind, these guys go absolutely crazy on the Argentine invaders. By the end of this battle, these 69 guys are outnumbered 40 to 1. And thinking, well, we're dead. We're going to die. We can't win. Let's go out and do some damage. And this friend of mine, Rachel, she looked out the window and she said, I couldn't believe how hard these guys were fighting to protect us. They were fighting like lions to protect us. And I just love the idea, looking out the window into the town and seeing these guys, you know, vaulting fences and rolling through things, putting down fire and what have you. And they were totally outclassing the opposition. Um, but you can't, you know, you, you can't beat 40 to one odds. Um, you know, they are you're 69 guys with rifles and a couple of anti-tank rockets. And they have an um, aircraft carrier. And yeah, and, and literally that <laughs> you can physically see yeah. out in the bay an aircraft carrier, two type 42 destroyers, um, a couple of 
heavily armed corvettes. There's an armed icebreaker. There's some big gun ex-American World War II destroyers. You know, they're turning up with, they've got six, five inch guns apiece. I mean, we've got a rifle, you know, um, they brought artillery. They had a tank landing ship, the Cabo San Antonio. They've got helicopters coming down. They've got Picara ground attack aircraft going overhead. We've got 69 guys with rifles, you know. Um, and the battle they fought was incredible. I mean, if, if any of your uh, viewers and listeners um, know the story of uh, the, the book and the film Siege of Jadotville, this is, it's so similar. It's so, so similar. And in my defense, I had not watched Jadotville. I'd never even heard of it until I'd finished Casualty. And I couldn't believe it. The same thing had happened in 1961 with the Irish at Jadotville. Um, and of course, Declan Power, who wrote their book, he did for the Irish guys what I did for our Royal Marines. And I know Declan, um, this lovely, lovely man. And he read the cop uh, you know, a copy of First Casualty and he was kind enough to provide a, a review in the book, which you've probably seen. And he said, I think your guys had it harder than mine. You know, and that tells you something. And for this to be downplayed as a token defense, throw your guns down and surrender, was pretty shocking. It was disgusting. And, and it makes me very, very proud to tell their story, but to tell it the way I have as well. I mean, casualty has been, I don't think we can, we could argue the point. Casualty has been probably the success of the Falklands War. And if anyone wants to study the Falklands War, you start with first casualty and the rest drops into place. I think it's, so important also to point out to people that this is not a rule Britannia piece of jingoism that you've written here because you present both sides as you do even more so the Argentine side getting into it in your second book, Last Letters from Stanley. But the fact that you had Argentines coming forward and saying, yes, we want you to tell this story as well. In fact, you thank Argentine friends for helping you write this. They wanted to dispel this notion too, that, oh, hey, it was easy. If you were somebody who died, especially at the hands of, of this dictatorship that's there at the time running your country, and they say, oh, no, you didn't, it was easy. They surrendered. Well, now it makes sense that both sides say this token defense myth is wrong. Whatever the reasons for being thrust into this battle were, we did our duty and they fought back. And then we had the, we had the ceasefire when they, they're running out. And then this is the, the true story. So this is not just a story where, oh, well, this, this fellow here, Ricky D. Phillips, he favors the home team. Both sides want the truth to be told because their governments both were fighting the propaganda war. That's true. I mean, and we say both sides. I mean, if I throw it a, a wee correction, um, of course, all three sides, because the Falkland Islanders are there. They're in the town. They are seeing everything. This battle in their streets, on their doorsteps, in their gardens, this battle to decide who and what they were going to be, this battle to decide, are you going to be British the way you want or are you going to become this sort of Argentine enclave or conquered territory or what have you. And all three sides, and that was one of the things, nobody has ever really asked the Falkland Islanders and um, nobody ever really asked the Argentines. You know, casualty is, it's sort of history in itself because it's its the first and only, I believe still, um, three-sided first-person narrative history ever. A one-sided is hard enough. No one's ever done a two, no one's ever done a three. 
you cannot write this book. Um, it would take it would take some vast expert many many years to do this. You can't do it. And I'm I'm very big on when people tell me I can't do things. I think that's because you <laughs> yeah. can't, or it's because nobody has ever tried. I mean, I didn't want this ever to be, uh, as you said, the, the rule Britannia jingoism or anything like that. Um, and in fact, Casualty was never even supposed to be a book. It, it started off its life as a, as a three-part blog post. And I put all these things together and I thought, someone, someone needs to write this. I've, I've put as much evidence together that I can say there's something else. And I thought, do you know what? If I give this to the world, a historian's going to write this. I want to read that book. No historian came up. The guys in the book came up and I'm like, oh my God, you're, you're them. And they said, please write the book. And I said, surely there's got to be a, 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 you know, another guy who's, who's better or whatever. And they said, they've had 35 years and more and they haven't yet. You know, a few have tried and they've all got it wrong and we end up wishing they hadn't. You're the first person to get it right. Um, and it's kind of, I, I said no to writing this three times. So, you know, if, if people get the wrong idea and think, um, did you just write a, a Rule Britannia flag wavy story that the home crowd would like? The answer is no. I said no many times to writing this and I was the only one to do it. And it, it was only sort of through a few conversations. I was checking things um, with an Argentine source that I know. And suddenly I met one Argentine veteran, then another, then another. Hugo Santalan, who, of course, is a, a big character in First Casualty. I mean, Hugo and I talk all the time. You know, I was only talking to him a few nights ago. We, we just talk about anything, you know, um, alcohol, women, funny jokes, <laughs> crude humour. You know, we still chat all the time. Um, but there were so many Argentines who, once I once I'd opened this door, they wanted to be in it. I think the story is somewhat different from what your country says. And um, quite a lot of them said, look, we don't care. They made it sound like we just turned up waving flags and these guys threw their guns down. Now, this, to, as Argentines, they said this is an important issue to us, the, the Malvinas, as they call the Falklands. Um, they said it's a very important issue to us, one that we feel strongly about. And we trained for this, whether knowingly or not, we trained for this moment, this moment of battle, this moment of combat our entire lives and we turn up and we do what we do and then we read the newspapers and it made it sound like it was a parade um we want to be in it i imagine that because of the history of the junta and all the people that they disappeared down there and you never heard from them again or the mass yeah. graves or things like this that to say oh okay there was no casualties nobody died one guy that's it yeah. that uh, the families have no closure then. The men who know that I held someone in my arms and he died, thats that never happened, you're being told. So uh, that to me is very poignant and painful. And I think that if people pick up that book, if they respect just good history, they will enjoy it and want to say, I could read some of these names and remember them. And without your book, nobody reads those names again. I think so. I mean, they're, they're very, very uh wise guys and very very knowledgeable people um but one of the things i realized quick you know soon on was if someone comes and writes a story i don't know you know pick one you know we we were soldiers with uh, 
Mel Gibson or something like it's great. But I mean, there's a book of it, but you've only got um, Hal Moore, wasn't it? The uh, American. But um, you've only got what Hal Moore and perhaps his guys said, a band of brothers. You've only got what Dick Winters and his guys are saying. And uh, brilliant books and brilliant narrative histories. But what were their enemies doing? What were their enemies thinking? And if you put those accounts in from their enemies, would that change what you know or what you think you know? And I realized that only the Argentines could make this stick. And then the Falkland Islanders were the, they were the being on the cherry on the icing on the cake. You know, that was, that was as much as you could get. So to put all these people, I mean, we're talking over 300 people came together from the Royal Marines, from the Falkland Islanders, from the Argentines. One of the great things, of course, being Stanley, Stanley, everyone knows everyone. It's a small town. So sometimes you think it's like having sort of CCTV in reverse. You'd be like, who lived there? I need a pair of eyes there because everyone was watching. And they go, well, um, such and such, I'll go and speak to them. And then this person would go, yeah, I saw what you want. It's sort of, it's almost like being able to play back time. Um, but Falkland Islanders, they'll go, I'll tell you, but don't quote me. And it's terrible. Um, you've got all this information, but you don't want to say an anonymous source because people go, yeah, right. <laughs> and I mean, there, there was one Argentine, um, he was a, a Buzo Tactico, and he absolutely admitted everything to me. He, he died a, a couple of years ago now. But um, when I was talking to him doing casualty, he absolutely admitted he said, yes, this happened. Yes, we did that. Yes, it was like this. Yes, oh, God, there was a lot more than, than one guy died, but we didn't say that. And I said, you know, and he was just telling me the truth. And he was telling me everything that I had considered was right. And I stopped him and I said, um, and this hopefully some people might curse at me and say, why didn't you just put it in? But it, it shows the integrity you have to have to do this kind of project. Um, I said to him afterwards, I said, you do realize you're on record here um, and I'm going to write this. And I said, look, I have no problems doing that, but I'm, I have a level of concern for you because um, this, this isn't the official line. And um, he stopped and he said, do you know what? He said, I kind of forgot. He said, I've just, I, I've sat on this for so long. Once I opened the floodgates, it all came out. And this guy literally, I mean, it's a, proud man a brave man a highly skilled man certainly in his in his day you know like i said the the buzos were like rsbs or your navy seals um and the guy was literally in tears he was saying please please don't quote me don't name me he was saying i'll get bricks through my window i don't mind about that so much i'll be called a traitor um his biggest concern was that his grandkids would get beat up at school and be known as the grandchildren of a, a traitor who told told this story. And I mean, if I'd have put that in and quoted the man, that would have nailed the story down one million percent. And you know what? I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. There's no way I could do it. And I didn't. Um, and I still wouldn't, even though the man has passed away now, I still wouldn't say, oh, and his name was, and now we can quote him because he was genuinely scared. And I think this is this is why a lot of people have been quite careful not to say certain things uh, for so long, because they're, they're genuinely scared. This is a big issue in Argentina. And, you know, the man was terrified. 
for his grandchildren. So I had to show the integrity on that. And I had to say, no, I, you know, anyone who says, oh, but is that, I, I could nail every, every question, but where I can't nail a certain question down, I have to leave it open. I'll always ask it. I'll always say there's this, but where I know I could nail it, but someone has said, please don't name me. I couldn't do one. I never have. You're enjoying my conversation with Ricky D. Phillips about his book, The First Casualty, The Untold Story of the Falklands War. Visit him at his military history blog that's called Making History. If you go and just look up the First Casualty blog, it pops up right there on Google. And you can find him on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And by the way, I wanted to show Ricky that I brought along a Talk about the the home team. I I got this shirt in part just to honor the people of the Falklands and and everyone that fought there in the war because it is so forgotten. For those of you watching on YouTube, you can see the T-shirt with the Falklands Island flag on it and the, the words. Now I wanted to quote Angus Constum. He's a veteran military historian and he's written over 100 books, so he knows of what he speaks. He says, I thoroughly enjoyed the first casualty. This is a terrific work of narrative history, and the style of delivery suits the subject with perfection. In fact, it is pitch perfect. This is a real shining example of what narrative history writing is all about, unquote. Ricky, that has to make the hairs on your neck stand up. It's it's such a high compliment, especially when you start out, as you said, not thinking you're the one to write this book. And then you get praise like that from somebody like Angus Constam, who has written hundred books. So over a hundred books, the guy is a machine. You pleased a lot of people with this book, which history doesn't always do. How do you cast that wide net so that the first casualty appeals to as broad an audience as possible? I think that what really captures it is the people and, you know, people by people first off. And I think you, I hope you know, everyone else has got this. So I really hope it, it sort of extrapolated over to, to the States as well. That the When you read it within the first five minutes, you feel like you're there. You feel like you're amongst the guys. You feel like you're one of them. Did you get that? Yeah, I know just what you mean. I'm, hey, I, not only I feel like I was there, I bought, literally bought the t-shirt. You <laughs> bought the t-shirt. <laughs> That's another podcast. As close as I may get to the Falklands, but yeah, sure. Th- this is and, the way it sounds silly, but to buy a shirt, you identify with the place, right? I mean, I, Ricky yeah. did not send me this t-shirt. I, no, I, I bought it myself. I promise. It's not a naked plug for anything or even for the t-shirt, although it is very nice. It's soft, but yeah. So <laughs> yes, to answer your question, you, you will read this book. You'll want to put on the t-shirt. That's really part of it. I mean, um, you know, like you can read, so let's say Band of Brothers was obviously a huge runaway success. And you didn't have to know about World War Two. You didn't have to be an American. You know, every British person has read or at least watched Band of Brothers over here. Probably most people in the world have, have read it or, or, or watched it at some point. And Casualty just, it just appealed. You know, when you're there, you don't just see, you know, they say... Um, they say in writing, you know, show, don't tell. But this was different. This wasn't just it, just tell. It wasn't just show. This was experience. I, I get the feeling that when you're reading Casualty, you can, you, you literally feel like you can reach out and touch the guy. You know, you literally imagine yourself there. And it wasn't like some clever writing style or something like that. It just, 
it was suddenly how it came to me, I think, because I knew the guys so well. And one of the great things, of course, is you, you know, when I started, I didn't want to just start with the British and then here's the Argentines. So actually, I did it the other way around. So you start with the Argentines planning to invade the islands and you meet them and you think, oh, they're, they're not just, you know, the baddies or whatever. They're funny guys. They're nice guys. You feel, wow, oh, these are really cool guys. And then you go to the Falklands and you think, these are really nice guys. These are guys that are funny. They're, they're good mates. They're a great love. And you almost feel like these guys are just going to turn up and, and have a few beers and it'll all be all right because they're just such nice guys. And suddenly imagine, you know, this, this sort of cute leafy little flower garden, you know, maybe a cat sort of, um, you know, curled up and snor snoozing in the sun and the birds twittering and a gentle breeze. And then suddenly someone drives a juggernaut through it and the explosive horror of that. Now, a narrative history is one thing, but of course, anyone can say anything. And so I really wanted to write almost not not quite two books in one, you know, but almost a large amount of, you know, the historical notes, the appendices, etc. So you can read Casualty almost like Band of Brothers, you know, it's just it's almost like an action novel, but it happened. But then you can go through and actually research all the subjects and see how we got to that point. You know, you can educate yourself on it or you can just enjoy it for what it is. The most commonly said thing about casualty is could not put it down. Absolutely glued to it. Starting again tomorrow. That's what most people say. That's what you want to hear. It is what you want to hear, you know, and um, bear in mind, I had no idea what it was going to look like until until it, it came out. When that book has Ricky D. Phillips written on it, and it's something I always wanted, you're always going to get something new. You're never going to get, you know, Ricky D. Phillips does a book called Waterloo or, you know, and it's just a standard rehash. If it's just a rehash of history, it's out there. It doesn't need telling. You know when I've written a book and it's there, you know you're going to find something new. You're going to have something that nobody else has got. And, of course, the, what made this quite famous uh, in many ways was um, when my original publisher, he'd been a nuclear submarine commander in the Falklands War. And um, just pretty much as we went to press, he sort of phoned his, his friends at the, uh, at the Ministry of Defence and just said, look, I've got this. We're all right to publish this, huh? And they went crazy. In fact, the words said by whomever at the Ministry of Defence, they said, you can't publish that. And he said, why not? And they said, and I quote, because he's right. Where the hell did he get that from? You can't publish that. It's <laughs> classified. Um, and he was threatened by the government. He was threatened with prison, with what we call a D notice, which effectively means they could just stop him publishing anything and seize his business. It was threatened with absolutely everything. And so we had to sort of get around it by incorporating it. Um, and I pretty much had to sort of buy and acquire anything done to take it off him. Because, of course, if he was a standard publisher, maybe. But you can imagine how many official secrets, acts and versions of it that mortal man doesn't know of. You have to sign <laughs> to command a nuclear submarine. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, so the government admitted, they said that this is this is absolutely, you know, true. 
And he said to me, I, I said, what do you mean? They said, he's right. I said, I told you I'm right. I know I'm right. And he said, yeah, but he says, afterwards we had a conversation. I didn't quite realize how right you are. And I said, yes, 100% bang on. He said, yes, it is. <laughs> um, so, and I think that's what captivates people. I think whether you're someone like, Angus Constam, who, yeah, I mean, Angus is probably up to about 130 books now. He, I've never seen someone can churn out books that fast. You know, he, he churned out five or six in the time that I wrote the sequel to Casualty, Last Letters from Stanley. He loved it. It was very different from what he would write. But if he said, look, I don't like this, I think you're on a wrong one here, I could only listen. And Professor Tony Pollard, of course, and uh, I know Tony pretty well. He's like the, the top academic in military history in the UK, pretty much, you know, and the layman. I mean, they're, they're the important ones. You know, an academic historian writes academic history for other academics. And this is not what I wanted to do. What I wanted to do was tell a story to the layman to let the person live the experience because then, you know, and then it doesn't matter whether you're the top academic or a layman or anyone in between. I think that's, that's the art of, of what I do. There's one item that I know just really struck me as I'm trying not to say blown away. Instead, I said struck me because it's about the sinking of the ARA Belgrano. And that was controversial at the time. And since we said that the British government forced these men to keep quiet, there's that infamous moment where they sandbag Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and a woman calls that show and is yelling at her and saying, you you did it. It was outside the zone. And she <laughs> says, well, someday the truth will be told, but not today. And unfortunately, that woman, I would, I'm sure that they wouldn't have bothered to go shove it in her face that they had intelligence and they could not release that about the ship. And if that's not a good enough source, here we have the captain of the ship of the Belgrano saying it was absolutely not a war crime. It was an act of war, lamentably legal. And to me, this shows what we get in this book and how even if somebody who is against the war or war in general, as that woman who called and jumped on Thatcher clearly was, you can get something from this that isn't that jingoism. You can get somebody who's the captain of that ship that says, basically, the Belgrano had it coming. Here to take away the honor of having gotten into a fight with a nuclear submarine, being the first ship sunk by a nuclear submarine, and to basically reduce it to the level of a mugging that's meaningless. That's something that, ah, it dawns on me after 40 years of reading about this war. And, and now and then, I'm, I'm not a student of it as you are, but knowing it, having it in the back of my mind, marking the anniversaries. Now I said, here the captain of the ship doesn't want his men who died. Many of these young men, they freeze because the, the junta has no interest in saving them, really. They drift off in the lifeboats. Here the captain of the ship says, yes, this was war, c'est la guerre, basically, and we had it, we had it coming. We, we were trying to execute a military maneuver. And that, to me, struck me so much among all the other things of the stories that you get out of First Casualty, the real knowledge you get. And this book, you called it the First Casualty. It could have been called Restored Honor or something like Stolen Valor, which we say here in the U.S. when people lie about their military career. I, I don't know where else you get a book exactly like The First Casualty. Well, I mean... Big subject. I mean, firstly, there is not a book like The First Casualty. And I, I hope and I think 
this is something now the United States is actually my second biggest uh, market of, of people who, who buy Falklands War books. But the Falklands War is becoming more and more tangible to Americans now, particularly as we're, we're talking about China and islands a long, t- a long way away. And suddenly the difference between being powerful on your doorstep and strategic and forced projection um, and against a, an opponent who is technologically as good as you um, and in some cases better. Um, and the UK you know, was selling weapons, not to interrupt you again, but they were selling weapons to the Argentines just before, right up to this. Someone asked me this the other day. I wonder what the last thing we sold to Argentina was. And bear in mind, they turn up with two Type 42 destroyers. They're ours. We, we make the Type 42 destroyer. Was it the Hermes you almost sold them? Um, yeah, we tried to sell them Hermes. Uh, it's a key Hermes. piece we tried of to this. HMS Invincible, the Argentine aircraft carrier, the 25 de Mayo, or 25th of May. That started off life as HMS Venerable, a Colossus-class aircraft carrier. It was British. <laughs> you know, the Argentina didn't, didn't make a lot of stuff, but they did. Their military shopping list was very big, you know, so they had five of these sort of big gun uh, ex-American destroyers. Um, the mm-hmm. Cabo San Antonio, the tank landing ship, was ex-American. The Belgrano and, had been the USS Phoenix. Exactly. The now show the, that we're selling here, it survived the attack on Pearl Harbor. And here it, it lays. Did, yes. Everybody is tied together in this story. And I think that's important. I, that's why I keep interrupting you a little bit. Pardon my rudeness. But totally. Just, no, no. Just to make everybody feel we all have skin in this game. And the US at the time, we're wondering, I know with me in school, I remember my teacher telling me, one of my teachers, that, well, Britain's the mother country, so that that's who we're going to tilt towards. And my wife had the experience of being, just by happenstance, there were a bunch of high school kids and they were going to meet with the Argentine ambassador to Canada the very right. morning that this invasion happens. And so uh-huh. he's expecting, well, an easy day with some high school kids are going to say, what do you have for lunch in Argentina? And instead they're firing questions at him about the Falklands. So even Canada involved. We have this image of Al Haig shuttling back and forth, if you've seen any of these videos and movies. But the U.S. was really under, they, they get frustrated with the dictatorship in, in Buenos Aires, as the Argentine people do in time. But what is the American's role? People do want to read a little bit about America. They wish, as I did as a young boy, not knowing anything, why don't we just steam in there? As still, again, smarting from the Iranians. So what, what were we doing behind the scenes? What I love is 74 days the war. It's so manageable, but there is so much good stuff in it. I mean, the, the sinking of the Belgrano, yes, as you said, it was the USS Phoenix. Um, it, it actually managed to sail out of um, Pearl Harbor as the attack was going on, it was it was Douglas MacArthur's flagship for a while. Argentina bought two of them. I can't remember the, the previous name of the other one, but the, the Noi de Julio is what they called it. And luckily, the, this, the Noi de Julio was a bit too dilapidated. So Belgrano was, this is one of the things, you've got to picture it. In a day, an age where ships like, like our own, you know, Type 42 destroyers or various frigates and things, they were considered one-shot ships, and you're talking about a four-and-a-half-inch naval gun. Again, one of one or two shots from those would finish it. And suddenly you've got this World War II-era thing. Yes, it's a cruiser, but it might as well have been a battleship at that point because 
It's carrying 15 six-inch guns. It's got eight five-inch guns. I mean, the biggest guns we've got are four and a half inches. Normally one, a few ships had the older twin turret. But that's it. I mean, this was like bringing a water pistol to a gunfight if, if the Belgrano got close enough. And she was an old ship, but her main armament had all been updated. It had all gone off to an engineering works with Hoffman. And they were brand new guns, pretty much. Um, she could survive. You know, her armor was thick enough that she could survive a hit from any of our ships. We could have sat there shooting at her for a long time with nothing happening. Belgrano could have made an absolute mess. Um, and not to mention she's got two of these uh, ex-American destroyers. They've got six five-inch guns and they've got four Exocet missiles apiece. Just those three ships outgunned everything we had. Now, Belgrano was, as we say, it was sunk um, by torpedo from HMS Conqueror. And you mentioned this lady. Um, I, I can't remember her name for the life of me now. I remember the lady you mean. It was about the only time Margaret Thatcher was ever on the ropes. Um, and this lady was giving her, this, this old lady was giving her an absolute hammering on the news. But as you said, Thatcher said, look, the truth will come out eventually but the problem is she was on the ropes because she couldn't say now what she couldn't say and what is known now firstly so there was a, a 200 mile exclusion zone um put around the Falklands the UK had asked the UN they told the UN we're going to do this and the idea was to limit the conflict so there were too many foreign uh boats and ships and aircraft in in the zone and the reason was particularly russians the russians were literally spying on everything we had they had you know they had cameras and you know listening equipment on the way down to the falklands we almost engaged a submarine um and we basically said look we we, we know you're there <laughs> you better surface and they came up and said uh, hello we are french you know and we're like would you go away you know <laughs> and um there were certainly russian subs there was american stuff there was french stuff uh, there was a worry. Cuba had three submarines. We There was a worry they would get involved. Um, lots of countries were sending over aircraft and converted um, fishing boats. In, in fact, there was there was actually the, a very small outlying island just south of the Falklands. They actually found the Russians had a little base there. They'd been sat there listing British ships. So we put this 200 mile exclusion zone around the islands. And the idea is get out of the way. Everyone, if you're in that and you get blown up, it is not our fault. But what people fail to understand and something that, you, you know, I've seen it today online. People saying, oh, they outside of they sunk it outside of the war zone. Argentina had been told on two occasions, the 23rd of April and the 28th, that anything outside of this or anything in the exclusion zone will be attacked. Anything outside of the exclusion zone if it poses a threat, it also can be attacked. It's simply to limit the conflict for everybody else that we're imposing this exclusion zone. So there was no war zone. There was no contained war zone. But there is evidence to suggest that Argentina and even Captain Hector Bonzo, the captain of the Belgrano, he actually believed whoever told him this, he believed he was safe outside of that exclusion zone. And that was going to be a problem because he wasn't. Um, so whoever told him that was was wrong. And 
this became a problem because he wasn't actually at action stations, you know, with his watertight bulkheads all closed and everything else. So there was a lot of casualties because he genuinely didn't know that he wasn't as safe as he thought he was. People said, oh, the, the Belgrano was sailing away. It was not. The Belgrano was south of the Falklands. It was zigzagging or in a zigzag pattern loosely. And it was in a holding, basically like an aircraft in a holding pattern. It was waiting because north of the Falklands, there were two other sort of task forces from the Argentina coming down onto our task force. And the Belgrano group was going to come in from the south. And they called it after Admiral Jose Lombardo, um, one of the heads of the Argentine Navy. They called it Lombardo's Trident, this, this sort of three-pronged assault. And we knew about this. Now, what we couldn't say is, of course, that uh, we, we had long since been able to decode the Argentine um, secret communications, but it took a little while. The USA, we mentioned, again, our, probably our next thing, we mentioned about US involvement and how we're slowly finding little bits out. You guys were very involved, but, um, you know, people who say maybe the Falklands isn't so popular in the States because America wasn't involved. And it's like, yeah, they were. <laughs> you just don't quite know. Um, the Americans, of course, made the encryption machine for their codes. Um, now, we, had, we knew how to decode the Argentine codes, but it took a while. We had to send them back to London. Someone had, it, it was based on the World War II Enigma system. And they would have to decode it, and they'd send it back. The Americans shortened that timeline for us and said, look, we can just put in the right key and we'll tell you exactly what it says. We'll save you a couple of hours or something. And so HMS Conqueror, our submarine, was shadowing Belgrano for quite a few days. And they said, look, if it goes into the exclusion zone, we'll sink it. Right now, it's just sat there. And so we sat and watched it at periscope depth, just waiting and seeing if it could do anything. So Belgrano is sunk on May the 2nd. Now, just after midnight, as May the 1st goes into May the 2nd, Belgrano receives a message. It is told to turn about and to go and attack and sink with its escort, HMS Hermes, our big aircraft carrier. Hermes was the big one, Invincible was the small one. You take out Hermes, the war is over. No force projection from the UK. And they had received orders to go straight in, sink the Hermes. After that, it doesn't matter what happens because Britain cannot win. You take that out and the war is over. What they didn't know is that they had a nuclear submarine parked right by them, which picked up that transmission, which sent it off to the Americans. The Americans came back and said, they're going to sink Hermes. And we said, well, they've just become a threat. The rules of engagement say anything outside of the exclusion zone, which constitutes a threat, can and will be sunk. They have just constituted a threat. And so we put two torpedoes into the Belgrano and it sank. Um, so this is this is why um, that a lot of what Thatcher couldn't say is that um, is that we, you know, the Americans were helping us sort of speed up the decryption of the Argentine codes and we couldn't say that we'd intercepted this transmission or that we had the ability to. Um, and we really couldn't say anything by, yeah, we, we sunk it there. Well, why did you sink it there? Well, it was a threat. And other people said, well, it wasn't that much of a threat. It was just sitting there because we couldn't say what we knew 
and how we knew it. So it wasn't sailing to port. After Belgrano is sunk, they say, right, everyone get back to port. Far outside of the exclusion zone later in the war, the Argentinians sink an American ship. It's good, the, the VLCC, the very large crude carrier, it's a massive, great big oil tanker. Hercules, the Hercules was, a, it was Liberian flag, but it was American. And it was nothing to do with the war, absolutely nothing. And the Argentinians bombed and sank. It's the biggest ship sunk since World War II is American, was the VOCC Hercules. And the Argentinians bombed it. They sent three waves of attackers bombing and strafing that ship. And United Carriers took the Argentine government to court over it and it, in, in the States. And actually, they couldn't do anything because it was in international waters. Ricky, I'm sure people can tell we could talk for hours. In fact, we already have, and we're going we're gonna to edit this down. I'm going to welcome you back to talk about your second book, Last Letters from Stanley, which is also very interesting, focuses on the Argentine side, what it was like to be one of those men who are often dismissed as just poorly trained conscripts, right? But I wanted to close with, which they were not, of course, they weren't all universally just thrown in there into the meat grinder. But for Americans that are watching, my audience is primarily Americans. I wanted to close with a question. Why should they pick up this book about this war that's been dismissed by Louis Borges? He called it Two Bald Men Fighting Over a Comb. And of course, if you're living on the comb or you're somebody doing the fighting and dying, it's not quite such a clever, peaceful metaphor. But many Americans are just now learning about how important this fight was and how much we can still learn from it today. So close with your pitch. Why should American viewers and listeners and readers pick up the first casualty and learn about this overlooked battle at the bottom of the world? Americans tell me, Americans who like history, Americans who know history, the real, the cool guys, the ones who know what they're talking about, who know what they're doing, they like the Falklands War. The Falklands War is getting quite cool. Now, you've got to imagine that, you know, when was the last time the United States had a war which involved, you know, battles on land, set-piece battles as well? These aren't just running fights like we had perhaps in Iraq and things, but set-piece battles on land, naval battles at sea, you had aircraft fighting, you had all three, you know, you had, you had the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, fighting a force who are... You know, they, they outnumbered us. Uh, their, their kit was as good as ours. In some cases, it was better than ours. Um, the quality of the men was different. But this is the, the moment where warfare changed. And the Falklands War is as relevant now as it was then. In fact, if you look at American ship design now, like warship design, it's, it's based on lessons learned from the Falklands War. Everyone has learned from the Falklands War. But um, your average American doesn't know about this. I think a, a lot of American history can be, forgive me for saying, can be considered when we spoke about this sort of uh, the, the flag waving rule Britannia version for us. I'm sure American history can be very sort of uh, ethnocentric, you know, very all about us, very flag wavy or what have you. This is very different. I think when you take yourself out of um, out of home ground and you have a look at this and go, oh, my God, wow. Um, there's a lot in here. Um, you suddenly get to understand it a lot more. I think American involvement in this war is bigger than anybody could have anticipated, is bigger than anybody knew. 
you still read online, American satellite intelligence. You didn't give us satellite intelligence. You gave us SR-71A Blackbirds. And people said, no, they didn't. Yes, they did. <laughs> you, literally, the, the, the Blackbird, like the coolest plane ever, was used <laughs> for intelligence. You know, that, that went over there. And suddenly people were like, I didn't know that. We mentioned about the Hermes being sunk, if it was. You know, they, they were going to go in and sink it with the Belgrano. And um, what we were going to do after that, Ronnie Reagan offered us an aircraft carrier. An American aircraft carrier was going to step in and do what was necessary. Um, and America was was very sort of uh, betwixt and between over it. You had certain factions, you know, we call the political factions in the build up to the Falklands War. In the UK, we call it the Whitehall War. Um, and people who maybe wanted Argentina to take the Falklands and obviously those who didn't. And really, although the term has never been coined, you really had the White House War in the US. There were two very different competing factions. Ronald Reagan, God bless Ronnie. We love Ronnie over here. He, he was always on Thatcher's side. But in the State Department, Gene Kirkpatrick and Tom Enders, and the, they were referred to by the British Taché there as um, Kirkpatrick is more fool than fascist and, and Enders is more fascist than fool. And it took Weinberger to go, what are you doing? And get rid of them kick them out the way and say, right, let's help. You mentioned Al Haig and Vernon Waters as well, both sort of former US generals, very heavily involved in, in the war and in who was going to do what. And although we, we perceive here that Haig was our friend, Haig was helping us out, which he was at the end. Haig wasn't helping us to start with. Haig tried to give the plans for the recovery of South Georgia, which was obviously the, the island's about 800 miles from the Falklands, but they were taken the day after the Falklands were taken, and we retook South Georgia first. Haig tried to give those plans to Argentina. What changed? And, and it was actually something I wrote in um, Last Letters from Stanley. I was talking about this and, and what changed. And I actually did write the words. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Good plug. Oh, I actually did write the words, and I admit I took them out. Um, and I even, I even said to my wife, I said, can I call El Haig? a lecherous old goat. And she said, I don't think you should call him that. So maybe I can't, but it was. What changed is that Al Haig, and I call him here on, on the History Author Show and iHeartRadio, I will say Al Haig was a lecherous old goat because he fancied Margaret Thatcher. He did. And um, he, I met her many, many years later. Oh, she was a very imposing woman. She was a beautiful command of the English language. Absolutely stunning. Um, and you just were compelled to listen to her. You're sort of drawn in by her. But she was actually, um, you know, in many younger days, she had a certain thing that a lot of people said who met her. They, they were, I don't know how. They, they were somehow, they, you know, sort of in love, in awe, enamoured. Um, and Haig was a lusty old, what do you call it? And um, he, he, he fell completely under Thatcher's spell. And you can say, oh, he wouldn't have done it. Yes, he did, for those reasons. Um, <laughs> I think as American involvement in the war becomes more and more apparent as to just how involved the United States was for good and bad in that war. You know, there was so, U.S. is a big country. It's got a lot of political interests, a lot of competing political interests. Even now, you know, um, the U.S. sells 
arms to one side and then to another side and then it joins that side and thinks why did i sew those arms to that guy who's now shooting him at these are conflicting interests this is global politics you know this happens but i think if americans realize firstly how involved they were but secondly that this happens this is happening now this happens since i wrote first casualty i've had american units i've had canadian units i've had lots of people approach me who were in wars all over the world and say we were the forgotten unit we got screwed this happened to us this is happening today and to understand not just warfare as it was and warfare when it changed to understand the world as it is today and why it is today and this sounds big it wasn't world war three but it was almost it was the biggest proxy war that had everyone actually involved because the uk was there and the russians were involved and the americans were involved if you look at how many countries were actually involved in the falklands war in one way or another you had over 30 countries involved in one way shape or form with the falklands war um and did Americans fight there? Yes, they did. I've met a few of them as well. Um, but that's a, perhaps a different subject, a different story for another day. Um, but the, this is very current because this is what's all American military analysts, people who know what they're talking about in the United States right now today are saying we are behind. We need to study the Falklands War. This is what's going to happen. This is going to be the future of war. If we're thinking particularly places like China we need to remember the Falklands War. And it, it is one of these things that all military analysts say, don't, you know, we going into the Falklands War, we'd forgotten every lesson we learned from World War II. The British had to cobble that war together on a shoestring, do not make the same mistakes. And Americans now are saying, we've probably forgotten too much about the Falklands War. So if I was the layman and I thought, I could be a bit of an expert on this, and this is actually going to be current, start with the Fulton's War and it all changes. Everything hangs on day one. And that is the first casualty, which is the untold story of the Fulton's War. And I would recommend it to you as so many people have. It has been the runaway success in the last 40 years of Fulton's War history. Start with casualty and anything you do after that, you can't really go wrong. Well, it's a little bit like potato chips, with all due respect. You'll read that first page or even that first book. And Ricky Phillips, looking forward to having you back to talk about Last Letters from Stanley. So I hope everyone enjoyed our conversation. Ricky, thank you so much for not only bringing me this book, not only bringing all of us your knowledge, but for bringing your passion. I think anybody who cares about fellow human beings will really just be glad to know, hey, this guy cared enough to tell this story, that the, to give these men the honor they had all been denied for so long. I hope everyone will pick up the first casualty. And Ricky, I won't say goodbye, but I'll say can't wait to talk with you next time about Last Letters from Stanley. Thank you very, very much, Dean. And it's been, it's been an absolute pleasure. I thought we could talk forever. And it, it just feels like we should sort of go, well, it's that time. Well, it isn't for you. It is for me. So let's have a beer and talk some more. I feel that we could all day. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to come back. And uh, thank you to everyone who follows and tunes into not just iHeartRadio, but of course the History Author Show as well. And to everyone in New York, because I've missed you guys. It's been a long time since I've been. So um, thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Again, the book is The First Casualty, The Untold Story of the Falklands War. 
As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the HistoryAuthor.com page for this episode. By buying the book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. I want to really thank Ricky D. Phillips for connecting with me all the way from Scotland and for shedding light on the misunderstood battle in the 1982 fight at the bottom of the world. So often we are going way back, 100 years, 200 years, to restore our hero in history. So in this case, it was really nice to do that for some men who many of them are still with us and they can finally get their due. Find Ricky at the First Casualty blog or on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn, where you can find me too. And if you enjoyed our conversation today, please do subscribe to that YouTube channel of ours. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio or wherever you enjoy this program. And remember to check back for our future interview with Ricky Phillips about his second book, Last Letters from Stanley. Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with Ricky Phillips and I today. I hope you have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the